Let me start with a poem. I shared this with some of you this week, but I'm, I'm just going to read to everybody. This is from Wendell Berry. If you like poetry, um, I'm, to be, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not a huge poet, poetry fan, um, but I do like it every now and then. But we're going to talk about Sabbath again today, and, um, uh, but we're going to talk about it in, in sort of a very different way than we've been talking about it. But I want to read this poem by Wendell Berry before I kind of jump into my notes. Um, this is what he says. He says, how long does it take to make the woods? As long as it takes to make the world. The woods is present as the world is the presence of all its past and of all its time to come. It is always finished. It is always being made. The act of its making forever greater than the act of its destruction. It is part of eternity for its end and beginning belong to the end and the beginning of all things. The beginning lost in the end, the end in the beginning. Okay, so you feel the poetry in this. What is the way to the woods? How do you go there? By climbing up through the six days field, kept in all the body's years, the body's sorrow, weariness, and joy. By passing through the narrow gate on the far side of that field where the pasture grass of the body's life gives way to the high original standing of the trees. By coming into the shadow, the shadow of the grace of the straight ways ending, the shadow of the mercy and light. Why must the gate be narrow? Because you cannot pass beyond it burdened. To come in among these trees, you must leave behind the six days world, all of it, all of its plans and all of its hopes. You must come without weapon or tool alone, expecting nothing, remembering nothing, into the ease of sight, the brotherhood and sisterhood of eye and leaf. And that's about the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath poem. I'll share that with you guys. On, we'll, we'll share it on social media so you can actually go through and read it. Why do we keep talking about Sabbath? The Lord kind of snuck this on us. This had not been on my radar. This was not something I was planning to talk about. But he just kind of snuck this in here and then left us here. And yet, that is the perfect example of the Sabbath. It's receiving, not earning. In the Decalogue, which is the technical term for the Ten Commandments, the command to honor the Sabbath is the longest commandment of the Ten Commandments, and it is mentioned more than any of the other 613 commandments in the Torah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Israelites, later the Jews, consider the Sabbath command to be the most important of all the laws. This command looks back to the first story of Scripture and teaches us that the crown of creation is actually Sabbath. Now, some might say that mankind is the crown of creation. While mankind is the most important creature, mankind only finds their proper place within the creation through Sabbath. This is what Dr. Carol Bechtel says. She says, Sabbath is a sphere, or we might say dimension. It's a sphere of blessing that we are commanded to enter into. And then I add this, because otherwise we would refuse to enter into it. And one more time. 
Sabbath is a sphere of blessing that we're commanded to enter into. Otherwise, without being forced, we would refuse the blessing. Sabbath is also a sign of God inviting us to closeness and union. So just a real easy example. When you have a day off or you go on vacation, who do you spend those with? You spend those with those who are what? Closest to you, right? Like do you, you go on vacation with your family. You don't go on vacation with a bunch of strangers usually. Unless you're, anybody do the world race in here? Okay, I was about to take a shot at the world race. So I just didn't want to offend anybody. Unless you're doing the world race. Or why win? Um, then you take a vacation with a bunch of bunch of people you don't know. But, um, but when you are going on vacation or you're spending the day off or whatever, you do it with the people that are closest to you. Therefore, the same God that created everything, who was the first to Sabbath from creating, walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Adam representing all of humanity. We've talked about Sabbath, tithe, and union over the past few weeks, but today I want to bring it home. What is really happening when we enter into Sabbath rest? Do you really need to take it seriously? Maybe a better question would be, what does my life look like when I don't Sabbath? And at this point, we're not just talking about a day. We're talking about a lifestyle. Really, this is what we're going to talk about a lot. We're talking about what it means to be Christian or people of God. The thing that specifically marked the Israelites as the people of God was the Sabbath. You know what I mean? It was circumcision, which marked them as covenant people, but it was Sabbath. On that day of the week, while the rest of the world was toiling, trying to make things work on their own, the Israelites were at rest receiving from God. So the Sabbath marked them as these are God's people. In the same way, if you read Hebrews 4 like I did a few weeks ago, in the same way, there is still a Sabbath rest that, are, that, is, called, that is calling you and I to enter into it today. But it's not just a day of the week, even though that is included. Take a day of the week to Sabbath. But it's called us into a lifestyle of Sabbath where the one day of week is nothing but a prophetic sign to a lifestyle that we live every single day of the week. So the day that you rest is a prophetic sign to you, to your family, to those around you, that this is the lifestyle I live every day of the week. The same with communion. Communion, you take the bread, you take the wine. But when you take those, you're not leaving things at the moment that you take communion. Those are signs or shadows of how you live every day of your life hidden in Christ. Y'all good? All right. So let's go to Matthew 11. I'm going to read, and I'll, I'll just explain this real quick before I get a bunch of stuff. Um, Matthew, Lord, 2 Corinthians, that's not even the right place where I want to be. Matthew 11, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, and then I'm going to read 25 through the end. So I'm skipping, um, let's see, let me tell you the exact verses I'm skipping. I'm skipping um, uh, Matthew 11. Sorry, y'all. I keep turning to all the other marked places in my Bible. We're going to skip 20 through 24, okay? Those are the woes. Here's why we're skipping this. Um, not that those are bad. You need to read those. Those are amazing. Matthew, most scholars believe, if you forget this, don't let this trip you up. I'm just giving you a little uh, explanation. 
Most scholars believe Matthew was taken from two main sources, okay? Possibly more, but two kind of main sources. Uh, one of those is, is the source that wrote the book. The other source is what's called a Q source. The Q source is known for its collection of Jewish sayings. And so uh, the verses 20 through 24 are uh, from, most scholars agree on this, this Q source. The writer of Matthew is inserting one of these Jewish sayings into this passage about uh, Jesus talking about come to me and find rest. If you read the story like I'm about to read it, you'll see the story is perfectly connected if you skip that section. If you include that section, the story gets super choppy real fast, okay? So there's, that's not to say those are bad, those shouldn't be in the Bible. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying for the sake of what we're talking about today, I'm going to skip that uh, Q source portion. So don't worry about that if you didn't get that, okay? Um, so Matthew 11, I'm going to start at verse 1. Now Jesus... Or when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. When John heard in prison that the Messiah, what the Messiah was doing, excuse me, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who's coming or should we wait for another? Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal places. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for the Lord. Or prepare the way for you, depending on your translation. Truly I tell you, among those born of woman, no one has risen greater than John the Baptist. Stop. Here, I'm not preaching on this, but let me just throw this in here. Among those born of woman, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. There's one major, major problem with that statement. Jesus was born of woman. <laughs> Do you see the, hum the humility that Jesus is, just a side note, that Jesus is taking in this? Essentially, he's saying, John is greater than me. Now, of course, we know it, that's probably not true. But, you know what I'm saying? But it's that, the reason that's included is to show us that Jesus didn't just come in this mighty, overthrowing way. He came in a way that relates to you and I in, in every single way that we live. Okay? I just love the humility in that. Okay, that was nothing. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist, or the baptizer, he wasn't a Baptist. Um, he was a baptizer, but anyway. Until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. I'm going to fix that verse in a second. Um, how many of y'all, Lord, in charismatic church, especially like the kingdom, King James, okay? Uh, here's what it says. From the days of John the Baptist, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. And we use that verse to say, game time. You know what I'm saying? It's time to overthrow. I'll fix it in a minute. Verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John came, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. But to, but to what will I compare this generation? Almost done. It is like children sitting in the marketplace 
calling out to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. 25. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Very familiar. Okay. Let me read verse 12. Okay, he's talking about John. Remember, John is in prison. We just read this in verse 2. John's in prison, okay? So John has been suffering for the message that he preached. Jesus is giving a testimony to John, who has been persecuted for the message that he preached. And this is what he says. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Here's, here's the alternate translation for this, okay? Um, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been coming violently, okay? And the violent, and I'm going to add this kind of bracket right here, the violent try to take it by force, what Jesus is saying is that not the kingdom of heaven is, is that which you should violently take by force. What Jesus is saying is those who have attempted to overthrow what the Lord is doing have attempted to take it by force. Hello, John the Baptist being forced into prison. Good? Does that fix that for y'all? Okay, so the, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and those violent people have tried to take it by force. So in other words, he's saying, you should not take this by force, which is a real big issue because how many messages have we heard that we should take it by force? So anyway, I'll just fix that for you. Um, I already explained why I skipped the verses. I hope you all saw that that made a lot of sense to skip it, and it read very good. Um, verses 28 through 30, this is what I want to focus on, okay? When he says, come to me, that is language that we see often in wisdom text in the Bible. It's an invitation to engage the mind in wisdom. Who is Jesus? Jesus is wisdom. The book of Proverbs speaks to wisdom all the time. Here's what's really funny. Proverbs speaks of wisdom as a lady. Jesus calls wisdom to himself. Jesus says, I am wisdom, which is really cool play on the bride and groom situation from Solomon to Jesus. But anyway, Jesus says, I am that wisdom, and coming to me, or when he says come to me, it's language that invites you to bring your mind into the place of wisdom that is found in Christ. So, come to me is a call to engage your thinking. This is what Genesis 3 said. You remember this? I've been talking about this for weeks. That when God goes to Adam and says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread. What is he saying? By the anxiety of never having enough, you will eat your bread. What is anxiety? 
is nothing but a thought. Right? Some, I mean, of course, some people would say, well, it's, you know, it's hormones and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, even those hormones are triggered by thoughts. So anxiety finds its home here. And the, the, the not the curse, the punishment for what happened in the story of Genesis 3 is anxiety. Jesus then becomes the last Adam and says, come to me. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm here to take that which is covered in anxiety, the mind, and I'm here to invite it back into a place of wisdom, which is the mind of Christ, Paul says. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who was the bishop of Jerusalem around 315 to 386, I quoted him this morning, but this is what he said about those in the church at that time. And I love this because it shows us that what we experience in the South is not unique to us, okay? This is about 315 to 386 A.D. when he says this. He says, For although your body might be here in the church, if your mind is not here, you've gained nothing. That's what he says. He says, you could show up every single week to church, but if your mind doesn't show up with you, you might as well not even come. He says, you're here in order to have your mindset shifted back into what it was originally designed to be. Your mind is where every single thing, good or bad, flows from. The, 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 the scriptures would say it flows from your heart. But the heart is not talking about like, you know how we use our hearts, like, man, just follow your heart. What we're saying is follow your emotion. That, that is not what the heart refers to. The heart, remember, they didn't have Google. They didn't have WebMD. They didn't have all this, you know, scholarship that we have today. For them, the heart was the center place where everything of your being was located. In fact, the heart in the Old Testament could most of the time also be translated as bowels. Because that is your innermost being. Okay? So what he's saying when it talks about your heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, for example. It's saying out of the overflow of the depth of who you are within you, your mouth speaks. We would say, if I was writing that verse today, I would say out of the overflow of your mind, your mouth speaks. Same thing. Okay? We're talking about the who you really are. When the... When the New Testament and Old Testament use the word soul. It's not talking about, and this is really relevant because it's Halloween time. It's not talking about Casper. You don't have a, a ghost floating around on the inside of you waiting to escape when you die to go to heaven. That's not, that, that's no, I don't even know where that came from Plato in Greek philosophy. But that's, that's, that's not it. The, the word suke in Greek refers to simply yourself. It's just who you are. It's that which enlightens your body. So it's your personality, it's the things that you like, it's the things that you don't like, it's the food that you like, it's the food that you don't like, it's the music that you like, it's the music, it's your, who you are, that's your soul. It's not, there's not dualism, okay? That's a totally different, that's Gnosticism, it's a totally different religion to believe. Here's the flesh, here's the ghost, and they're fighting against each other, and one's trying to get the upper hand. That's called Gnosticism. That is not Christianity. Gnosticism is a totally different religion. How many churches today are preaching Gnosticism? You know what I'm saying? God bless us. Well, preach Christianity first. You know what I'm saying? So, no, the soul and the body are one. And when Paul even says, when he, said, when he compares and contrasts the soul and the flesh, 
Those, those aren't, he's not talking about the, your, your skin. You know what I mean? Like, follow the ghost in you. Don't follow your skin. Last time I checked, my skin never told me to do anything. Easy. No, he's talking about being led by what's outside of you. You might say the culture around you, rather than being led by what's within you, which is the Holy Spirit. Good? So, that's what St. Cyril says. He says, although your body might be here, if your mind is not, nothing is gained. Repentance, even, has to do with a change of your mind. Metanoia. The word soul, I just explained this to you, has to do with who you are. And ironically, a lot of the church today has said things like, don't be too analytical. Just have faith. In order to have faith, though, you have to engage your mind so that you can be empowered to have faith. You know what I'm saying? So why do I believe that God's going to come through on his promises? Blind faith? Sure, that's not a bad thing. Or have I realized there is a pattern in how God moves, and that pattern says he is 100% of the time faithful. Therefore, I'm going to have faith. And suddenly having faith doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. So when we started this church, it wasn't a big step of faith. It was just a step of faith. But it seemed like a big step of faith if I'm not analytical. If I don't look at it and say, he's been faithful, he's been faithful, he's been faithful. And here's the other thing. He told us to do this. This is what my spirit, Lee McDermott, he's, not, he's preaching today, so he's not watching this. But Lee McDermott, my spiritual father, a few weeks ago, we were talking about money and, um, and, and the church. And he said, here's what you need to do. You need to take the bank account in your mind. You need to take the bank account. You need to take it to the Lord. And you need to look at him and say, this is your problem. I don't know how you're going to fix it, but it's all yours and walk away. We don't have any problems, but you know what I'm saying? But that's what, and I was like, that is exactly, we need to take our lives and say, Lord, your promise is what got me here, not mine. So it was your promise. Therefore, this is your problem. Here you go. And I'm walking away. Well, bro, that's irrelevant. No, that's having faith. You know what I'm saying? This ain't about how you, can figure, how you can figure out how to get yourself out of a corner. It's about how much you can see the door that's right behind you that's already been prepared for you to walk through it. Okay, so when he says, Come to me, all that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle, I am humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. The word yoke there is a rabbinic metaphor for the difficult but joyous task of obedience to the law. You ready for this? is going to be good. You ready for this? How many? Take, take, man, take your yoke to the Lord. Yes. More specifically, when Jesus says this, the yoke he is referring to is what was well known in that day by the rabbis to be a metaphor for observing the law. And Jesus says, in other words, take my obedience as yours. Another way we could say this, take my faithfulness for yourself. Now, self. Now, what does that sound like? Sabbath. Take my obedience and claim it as your own, and there you will find rest. Whoo! Okay? That's the Sabbath. That's the tithe. 
We are called to bring it to him. Why? So that you can take his obedience and faithfulness as your own and live in rest. So I don't have to earn a life for me. I'm going to give you, by way of the tithe, control of my life, and I'm going to sit back and watch as you are faithful over the thing that is yours. You know what I'm saying? If God is in control, it's his problem. If God is the one that's in control of my life, every single step of my life is not my problem, it's his. I've just got to say yes. And then I've got to sit back and I've got to say, I don't know how you're going to move, but this is your thing. This is your life. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust that everything else is going to be given to me. I don't know how it's going to be given to me. I don't have to know. It's not my problem. You know what I'm saying? I mean, what, what if we started living in such a faith that we just walked and we just gave and we just rested and we just trusted because we lived with, a, with an idea that said, this is not my life, it is yours that you're living through me on my behalf. So, so, so when you walk through a time when you, like for example, lose your job, it either you could strive to try to make things happen on your own or you could live in such a place of trust that you just follow the Spirit's leading and know that He's got the path already laid. Psalm says like this, Every day of your life was written in His book before one of them came to be. This is not a surprise. God was not shocked when you lost your job. God was not shocked when that relationship didn't work out. God was not shocked when you needed that money and it didn't happen. He wasn't shocked. That's, that's all part of the plan. You know what I'm saying? It's all part of the plan. So when he says, I am gentle and I am humble in heart, you will find rest for your souls. There's that word, suke, for yourself. When he says that, he's calling us to a place where suddenly we begin to live with his obedience and with his faithfulness and find the weight of the world fall off of our shoulders and in that place, we can suddenly begin to be everything that we were called to be, which are people that are mirroring everything about the image and likeness of God. That's, just, that's not just identity. That's everything that we do in our identity. So you're, you don't just look like the image and likeness of God. You live like the image and likeness of God. So when I preach, for example, or when we're doing worship, or when you're doing your job, or when you're doing your school, all of that stuff, you're doing mirroring how God himself would do the very thing that you're doing. You're not doing... Jesus said it like, like this. I said it last week. I do nothing on my own. Everything I do, I've seen the Father do. And my yoke is easy. This is what Jeremiah 6, 17 says. And this is what Jesus is kind of, kind of pointing at as well when he, when he gives this. And I'm almost done. He says, stand, Jeremiah 6, 16, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find what? Rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls, verbatim. Jesus, in that verse, see, we don't see this because we, you know, we don't know enough about the Old Testament to know this. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah 6.16. Jeremiah 6.16, stand at the crossroads and look, 
ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. If you keep reading that verse, the next part of that verse says, but you have not chosen those paths. And the rest of Jeremiah 6 goes through and talks about the repercussions for not choosing the right path. Jesus steps in as the way, the truth, and the light that no one comes to the Father except through. He steps in, but he says, this time you have no choice. I'm going to choose the ancient path on your behalf, and you are going to inherit the ancient path without your choice getting in the way. So he, just like the Sabbath, he commands the Israelites to rest because he knows they won't rest. In the same way, Jesus becomes humanity to choose the things that we would not choose on our own so that we can be blessed in a way that we would never be blessed because we'd never choose the path that leads to what we are called to be blessed by. We're called to chase the ancient path to the Garden of Eden. And we refuse it 100% of the time if it's left up to us. Jesus becomes humanity, and he takes humanity with him down the path all the way to Eden. That's how the Bible ends. Behold, I saw a new creation, the older, the new heaven and new earth. The old had passed away, the new was here. He's not talking about a new, brand new, the old has been blown up, and now here's a new creation. He's talking about a restored creation, or we would say Eden. So the story ends in the same place it began because one man stepped in the gap where we were trekking off into non-existence. He stopped us. He put humanity on his back and he said, I'm going to walk as you until we make it all the way back to Eden. And when you get back to Eden, you're not going to find a tree of knowledge of good and evil there anymore. I'm taking you back to Eden. And when you get there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil won't even be an option anymore. This is what John says. He sees this river in Revelation, and what is it lined with? Trees that are for the healing of the nation. Trees of life. Now, in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, what was one tree of life is now many trees of life, and all their leaves are for the healing of the nations. That's how the story ends. How does the story get there? Because of the incarnation. Because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and in us and as us, and He goes to the cross and He dies the death that we gave Him so that He could rise again and give everybody who just gave Him death life in return, and in that treks us back to the Garden of Eden where we find our place. And the way that we live in that is Sabbath. You could be, listen, you could be in the land flowing with milk and honey and be anxious. Let me say this. You could be right dead in the middle of everything that you've prayed for and, and still be anxious. And I'm speaking from experience. I mean, how many of you used to pray, Lord, if you could just get me, if you could just do this, if you could just get me here, if you could just help me get to this, and then you get there, and now all of a sudden you're anxious about what's coming up next, as if what just happened didn't even happen, right? Lord, if you'll just provide this time, and it's like, I'm sorry, did I not just provide for you the past 100 times? You know what I mean? God, I don't know how how we're going to do it. I I don't know how we're going to make it. How many of you have said this, right? God, I don't know, I don't, I, I'm praying for a spouse. I'm getting old. 
right? I'm getting, I'm getting old. My womb is closing up. And the Lord said, I'm sorry. Did you read that story about Sarah? I'm sorry. You know what? Huh? I don't know. No, no, nobody wants to be 99 having a baby, but you know what I'm saying? And we, we live in this consistent, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat every time. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. Our house, this is me this week. Oh, Lord, the flood's coming. I need to go buy sandbags. You know what I mean? I need to go. And why, do I, why did I think that? Because I made the great mistake of turning on the news. And, um, and I should have known nobody's going to watch the news if they say it'll be nothing. You get sprinkles. Nothing. That's I mean, like, pfft, who cares? You can turn off the news. But if they say the end of the world is here, you know what I'm saying? It's you're losing, you'll lose everything. Everything you ever had is gone. Um, your insurance don't cover this. It doesn't cover this. You know what I'm saying? And, and so, of course, I made the bad, horrible decision to watch it. So I tell Jordan, I say, I need to go buy some sandbags. Because if it rains a lot, our backyard floods. It never gets toward our house, but it kind of just, you know, puddles up real bad. And, um, and so I was like, man, if it's going to rain like they're saying it's going to rain, I need to go buy sandbags. I'm talking hundreds of dollars here. You know what I'm saying? That, by the way, we don't necessarily have to spend just on a bunch of sand. You know what I'm saying? And so... Um, so anyway, this is how the Lord works. You ready for this? Dumbest testimony you've heard in a long time. But so we, Veda, all this is happening while Veda wants a cat. And so we go to the place where you get cats. And, um, and they were like, you know, our, I was like, how much are your cats? I'm thinking like 50 bucks, you know, whatever. And she said, 300. And I said, Three, 300? Are these made out of gold? Or, you know what I mean? Or, and um. And I thought, I laughed the first time. I thought she was joking. She was dead serious. And I said, well, um, I, you know, Veda, I'm sorry. I don't think we can do this. And cried the whole way home. And just, just, just inconsolable. So the next day, we go to another place where they were 25 bucks. And we look. And, of course, they just got rid of all their cats. So they only had a few. And uh, last time we went, they had like 100. So, and, um, so we, went, we found one. I signed all the papers to buy it. It was going to be 25 bucks. And then right before I hand them my credit card to pay for this cat, um, while I'm doing that, Veda and Jordan are playing with the cat, and it just starts biting them like crazy. You know what I mean? Just going insane. And so Veda, I see Veda run down the stairs, and she was like, no, no, don't, don't, don't. And I was like, what? And uh, I'm getting frustrated now, you know, at this point, because I just filled out all this paperwork. And, uh, and she said, it's biting. We don't want it. We don't want it. And I was like, okay, awesome. And so we go back to the place that had the cat that was $300, and the cat was literally perfect, you know, and so um, I was like, all right, we're just going to spend the money, we're going to have it for 15 years, if it's a good cat, we'll just do it, and also, this is your birthday and Christmas, and, um, and so, you know, and so anyway, so we did that. The reason I didn't go buy sand was because we spent $300 on this cat, you know what I'm saying, okay, so we get to Friday, and I'm not trying to downplay anything, but, you know, we got a few sprinkles, and a leaf, I think three leaves fell off our trees, and, um, and here we are today. I told Jordan, I was like, if somebody messaged me and said, are we going to have church Sunday, I'm, they're, they're kicked out of the church. Um, so thank you all for not, like, hey, are we going to have church Sunday? You know, um, every year it gets, it gets below 30 degrees. Are we having church Sunday? Yes. And if you're not in the hospital, we're having church. Um, Anyway, I, I say all that to say, when, when, you, when you get to the place, now I was not in this place, I was mad, okay? But when you get to the place where you see that the Lord is concerned with even the smallest details, okay? 
I mean, even the, the most, we were talking about this this week. Like, Isaiah was telling me about him going to Burger King one day, and they gave him an extra, extra uh, biscuit or something, croissant. And you know what I mean? And it's like, that seems really insignificant, but at the same time, the Lord is, even in those moments, is working. You know what I'm saying? There was nothing Isaiah did in order to get an extra croissant, except just be Isaiah and be at the same place at the time that they were giving out an extra croissant. Right? I mean, and again, that seems like it's so insignificant, but at the same time, how many times have we stressed out over the even insignificant things and the Lord is trying to constantly remind us, I got this in control. And we'll watch him do it, and then we'll stress the next day about the same stuff. That, and so Sabbath calls us into a place where it, for a long time, has to force us until it becomes a rhythm to rest and to see the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord. So when you get to the place where you say, I don't know how this is going to play out. That's the moment that you need to take a sit. <laughs> that you need to take a seat and you need to, I said sit on purpose, to sit down, okay? But then you also need to take a seat and you need to watch as the Lord does this. How many times in the Old Testament, sit back and watch the faithfulness of the Lord and then the Lord will go through and destroy armies on their behalf. They march around Jericho and suddenly Jericho just falls, you know? And all they had to do was say, march around Jericho. Huh? Here's the plan. We're going to walk around Jericho. How long are we going to walk? I have no idea. You know what I mean? Most of us missed that. If you go read Joshua, the people had no clue it was going to be seven days. No, that was not told to them. You know what I'm saying? Can you imagine day six? Day six. And they're not just walking around a building. They're walking around a city. So can you imagine for six days, if I came to you one Sunday, none of y'all would do it. But if I came, actually, maybe two or three of y'all would do it, and you're related to me. But if I came in here on a Sunday and I was just like, here's what we're going to do. This, this is what the Lord told me. We're going to walk around the city of Columbia. Okay, how long are we going to walk around? I don't know. You know what I mean? Okay. And you would, maybe you would do it for a day or two days or three days, probably not four days. Can you imagine the sixth day? They get up, they walk around the city, they go home, grandma calls. How did it go today? Did any, did a brick fall? You know what I mean? Did, did anybody get slain in the spirit? You know, whatever. No, we just, we just walked. So how long y'all going to just walk? I don't know. Right? The seventh day. Now imagine, what if they had just quit? What if they had just been like, this is dumb? Which I mean, they did many times. But then on day seven, they get up, they walk around. They don't just walk around once. They walk around seven times, and they blow trumpets. And as they blow trumpets, suddenly a city is leveled in front of them, and they walk right in. Huh? And so what's the Lord teaching them? Number one, seven is really significant because do you know what happened on the seventh day? Sabbath. So for seven days, they walk around. For six days, nothing happens. On the seventh day, they receive victory from the Lord. And you see, you see this all throughout Scripture, is that the Lord is calling us to come into a place where we trust when He said it, 
he will perform it, and it will not come back to him empty or void, but it must be accomplished. If the Lord spoke it, there's one outcome that's possible, and it is being accomplished. That's it. It's the word of the Lord. That's the other reason why Genesis 1 starts with the Lord speaking and not doing anything else. It's to show us and teach us that we Sabbath in the same way that God Sabbaths. And by the time he gets to day 7, he's not even that tired because all he did was speak. Do you know what I'm saying? You and I need to get to such a place of rest that we believe our words carry much more weight than what we do with our hands. Because our words have a power that our hands do not have until we put our hands in the proper place. Then they do. But our words and what we believe and what we have come into agreement with has much more authority over our lives and those around us than what we could do on our own. And then when you believe that, suddenly he says this later in Deuteronomy. He says, everything your hands touch will prosper. Why? Because you've come into a place where you agree with who you really are. Sabbath is primarily a mindset. It's not that you stop your works. It's that you trust. That you receive his faithfulness as your own and live easy and light. Same with the tithe. The tithe is commanded to train your mind to know that it is his faithfulness that provides for you and not yours. Sabbath is the answer to the effects of the fall. If you want to call it that. Sabbath is the answer. What's the answer to Genesis 3? Sabbath. Well, I thought it was Jesus. It is Jesus. And it's us coming into agreement with what Jesus did by way of Sabbath. Sabbath is entered into first through union. Okay? Here's how we see this. We see a salvation invitation. Okay? And I don't even necessarily like that wording because Jesus saved on the cross. But an invitation into relationship with them. Or we might see it like this. We see a decision to reconnect or to rejoin how we think with our union. Or, or we see it through reflection. And here's what I want to do when we end. Isaiah, you can go ahead and hop up here. Here's how I want to do this. I want to do a, a, I guess you would call it altar call, but you don't have to come up here unless you want to. But I want to end with this. I want to give, I want to give three opportunities for you to just very practically come into Sabbath. Okay? So if you would just bow your heads. We're almost done. Man, I've been getting early lately. What's happening to me? <clears throat> I'm resting. I'm not trying too hard. Number one, and everybody's, nobody's looking around, okay? Is, is there anybody in the room right now that you have never said yes to Jesus? Just plain and simple. And today you want to do that. If you would, would you raise your hand? Anybody, first time, like I've never done it, I want to do that. Nobody's looking around. Yeah. Awesome. Let me ask this. Is there anybody in the room that you would say, I used to have a really good relationship with Jesus, but I do not anymore? Yeah, anybody. And you want to do that today, would you just raise your hand? Already hands have gone up. Yeah, yeah. And here's the last part. 
I'm, as I pray over those who raise their hands, those first two, I want you to just reflect. Maybe you could write them down if you want to. Um, maybe you write it down later. Reflect some ways that the Holy Spirit is showing you right now that you could come to Him and rest in His faithfulness in your life. It, it could be big. It could be small. But what are... It, let me say like this. It could be questions that you have that you do not have an answer for. That you have strived and strived and strived and strived to find an answer. And the answer is, come to me. All who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. It's easy. My burden's light. So as I pray, I just want you to, like Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just illuminate some of those areas in our lives where we need to come and find rest. God, I pray right now, first and foremost, for the hands that were raised to start a relationship with you. God, I pray that right now in this moment, without a repeated prayer, without any kind of dramatic theatrics, there, there is a holy thing that's happening right now when we say yes to a fusing of our lives with yours, with our minds with yours. When we say yes to coming into the people of God and finding home there. When we come into a place where we don't have to live on our own anymore. We take up our cross and follow him. That doesn't mean we literally die. It means everything about who we are apart from him does die so that we can live as Paul says, life to the full. God, I also pray in the same way for those who raised their hand and said, my relationship with Jesus has not been lately what it used to be. Here's the thing. You have not lost ground. Those of you that raised your hand, it's not like you're 10 miles behind where you used to be because of time. You're exactly where you've always been. And, and let me say it like this. You couldn't go deeper than you are. You're as deep as the Lord has ever longed for you to be. The only thing that stands in between you realizing that and not is you letting him take your mind and letting him reveal to you the ways in which he is a good father in the ways that Jesus is the bridegroom king in the ways that Holy Spirit is the very life of God that has been given to you. And God, I pray for those that are reflecting on this, myself included, I pray that you would, even this week, today, this week, in the weeks to come, that you would just start revealing to us, what are some ways that I have control over my life that I need to give up? It doesn't mean we don't do anything. Sabbath doesn't mean that we don't do anything and just sit back and hope it all works out. It's a mindset that says everything I do I'm going to do under or within the revelation that you are the one who is faithful and I receive your faithfulness through that. It's not about how well we follow the law. It's not about how perfect we are as Christians. It's about how adequately enough we receive His faithfulness to the law and His righteousness which is perfect. What, what if the fervency that people have in trying to be morally perfect, what if that in the church was shifted to a fervency of just simply union? We wouldn't have to tell people how to live so much. 
because how to live would be naturally inherited when you gaze into the eyes of the one that loves you. We love, why? Because he loved us first. How do I know what love is? Because I've received a love that is far beyond anything that any human being could ever give me before I ever loved. I received his love before I ever loved in response, which means my response is not what his love is contingent on. It's simply contingent on the fact that I'm a human being. And if I'm a human being and you're a human being, that everything we have ever need has actually been imputed to us. It's been given to us. God, we love you in your name. Amen. For those of you that raised your hands in the beginning, um, I'm not going to ask anybody. I'm not going to embarrass anybody or anything like that. I'll let you take care of that. But um, uh, for those of you that raised your hands, I would just encourage you, even those that you know haven't done this, um, to be baptized. I mean, that, this is a major deal. We're going to start making a major deal of this. And um, not that we haven't in the past, but like th- this is... The more I read the early church fathers, the more I realize everything they did hinged on baptism. It was huge. Um, and it wasn't just, a, you know, let's just have a big baptism. I heard um, a church planter one time, and it made me want to throw up. I heard a church planter one time, uh, I overheard him talking to another pastor. And I was meeting him, but then he got a phone call from another pastor. And dead serious, the pastor apparently said that people had stopped showing up to his church. In, in the way that they were before. And this church planner said, well, why don't you have a big baptism day? That'll get people excited. Dead serious. And I was like, excuse me. I just got, I got a meeting. I got to go. Siri just picked up my Lord. He's Siri's texting that person right now telling them that. Um, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I mean, no, but if, if that's something that you made the decision, there's just something about baptism where we can physically connect with what Jesus, you go under the water and you leave everything behind, you come up new. In fact, in the early church, and we don't do this, this is illegal now, but the early church baptized people naked. This is, I mean, this is legit. I just read a whole, you know, 20 page writing from somebody talking about why they do this. The people would come in, the new believers would come in, they would take their old, and remember, they, they, it was very dirty there. It wasn't clean like, you know, like we are. And uh, they, so they would take their dirty clothes. They would take them off. They would throw them away, sometimes burn them. They would baptize them without them. And then they would give them a white, perfectly clean robe to put on afterwards. And it was symbolic of that is not who you are. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, that's illegal, but I like it. So you know what I mean? I couldn't do it because I'd be in jail. But, it, but, it's, but it's awesome to think about. So we're not going to baptize anybody naked. But, um, and let's be real in the Bible, we'll say that anyway. So uh, we're, at least if it was me. So we're going to um, baptize fully clothed. But, but it is a big deal. And so if you raised your hand earlier, just come talk to me whenever you feel good about it. And uh, I'd love to get that set up. Um, or if you haven't been baptized, before and you didn't just pray that prayer but you need to be baptized let me know that'd be awesome um and then uh there's one more thing i would i I wanted to mention and i mentioned this in the prayer just now and we'll be done um the old testament trips up a lot of people in the sense that there's this this feeling and we've talked about this as a church a long time but just to remind you in the sense that there's this feeling that 
the Old Testament God is this angry, kind of wrathful, vengeful God that kills and all that stuff. And then you get to the New Testament, and there's Jesus, who's a buddy and friend and you know nice and all that stuff. And we miss that even in the law, the first thing that is said before one law is given is, I am the Lord your God. In other words, I've been doing a lot of scholarship work on this lately. In other words, the Lord tells the Israelites, you are my people before he tells them what to be obedient in. In Hebrew and in just theology in general, that is extremely important. If God gets to the end of the law and then says, and you are my people, what he is communicating is, if you keep these laws, you'll be my people. By him beginning before he ever gives a law with, I am the Lord your God and you are my people, he then gives the law, which is to say, whether, and this is real, y'all hang with me, whether or not you follow the law, you're still my people. But your obedience to the law will determine how well you live. Why, what if we saw the Old Testament like that? Well, my, he, he killed so many people. Nope. He said, if I find one righteous person, I won't do it. You can't have both. You know what I'm saying? Well, my God, he, ki he killed them. when they, He didn't let Moses go into the promised land. That wasn't his choice. That was not his choice. It was Moses' choice. That's just like going into a, a, a prison and going up to somebody who's just murdered 35 people and saying, my God, I hate America. They threw that guy in jail. No, he put himself in jail when he murdered 35 people. Do you know what I'm saying? It, but when you go through the Old Testament, we really need to start seeing Jesus in the entire Bible, not just the New Testament, because he is there, if you'll see it. What kind of God brings the people out and he says, before we do one law, before we say one thing, just to make this clear, I am your God. Now, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, honor your father and mother so your days are long on the earth. Now, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, it's, it's, you get into the temple, I'm going to teach this in a few weeks. You get into the temple, they, they mimic Genesis 1 in how you enter and leave the temple. I mean, it's unbelievable. But you see Jesus in all of this stuff if you'll just know how to see it. Okay? And so that's kind of why we've been back and forth between the Old and New Testament lately is because we've got to get a hold of what the Old Testament is. You can't take the majority of your Bible and throw it in the trash because you don't understand the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. This is what all the early church fathers spent their entire lives to prove is that that God is this God. It's not a different one. Jesus is not something that just became. He is the same God of the Old Testament. The God that met the Israelites in Egypt and knew their suffering is the same God who suffered at the hands of the very people he delivered from Egypt. Same God. He, man, 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 man. See, this is why when we leave early, when we get done early, when Jesus is killed on the cross, he's killed by the Romans and he's killed by the Jews who are Israelites, who are the people he delivered from Egypt. Now, when he, when he goes to deliver them from Egypt, he goes to Moses and he says, I know their sufferings. Not, I know about it. I've experienced their sufferings with them. That's Exodus. 
Well, how does Jesus know our sufferings? We gave it to him. I mean, you see how that float? You see how this float? This is one story, and it is a God who time and time again could have said, away with them, enough with them, I don't need this, I'm perfectly fulfilled without them. And time and time again says, nevertheless, I choose them. The flood story could have been God saying, I know that when this is all over, Noah and his sons are going to mess up and it's going to be the whole thing again. He could have, he could have said, you know what, I'm gonna, that's what he originally wanted to do, right? Well, not really. That's just the, the story in Hebrew. But instead, as the flood is taking place, God changes, not man. Because when they get back, they start sinning. It's not, mankind does not change in the flood. God changes in the flood. How does God change? The beginning of the story is, I'm going to do away with them. The end of the story is, there's a rainbow as a sign of my covenant that I'll never do this again toward you. What changed? It was God committing to a humanity that he knew he would have to suffer on behalf of and still said yes. In fact, the rainbow, the bow, is not pointed toward you and I. It's pointed toward him. In the covenant, the rainbow is the the phrasing in Hebrew is a warrior's bow. It's not aimed at you and me. It's aimed at him. Even in that sign of the covenant, God is aiming every ounce of judgment toward himself in Christ on behalf of you and I. Why? Because we messed up, because we fell, because we, or whatever language you want to use, because we lost our minds, because we lost our ways. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still ungodly, he died for the ungodly. He, became, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. Why? Out of solely out of affection for you and me. That's it. And the least we can do is come back into a place of affection towards him. I mean, that, that's the least we could do. Paul says it like this. We are living sacrifices. We are, as the early church would say, bloodless martyrs. They used that language after the persecution was over um, in Rome because now the church wasn't being martyred for their faith. You and I aren't being killed for our faith. Praise God. We live in a country where we don't have to be killed for our faith. That might come one day. But like, you know what I'm saying? And so the early church called themselves that weren't being martyred anymore, bloodless martyrs. Why? Because they still, in their suke, in their spirit, in who they were, were still being martyred on behalf of living as Christ and dying as gain. So you and me are bloodless martyrs. We haven't physically died for our faith, but we have spiritually died for our faith. And when we died, we were dead with him. And when he was raised, we were raised with him. And that, you know what I'm saying? See this story. I mean, I could go all day. We could start in Genesis, go to Revelation. And by the end of that, you'd see, oh, this is, a, this is one story. And we're going to do that over the course of time. But I'm telling you, this is not what we thought it was. I've been saying that for a year and a half, but I'm telling you, this is not what we thought. And that's a good thing. But it is everything we always hoped it was. So I bless you with that. I could go on, but I'm going to resist. Um, I'm going to know when to say no. But um, I, I just love, I love you guys. Thank you all for being here today. Y'all enjoy the cooler weather this week. 
and then we'll be back um, Tuesday. So has anybody got anything before we go? Happy October. Awesome. Thank y'all. I'll see y'all next Tuesday.